Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe Von Oppen, no time for pleasantries. What the fuck are we talking about today? Today we are talking about a uh, new, <laughs> new like <laughs> with how fast everything moves nowadays. Like this movie's a few weeks old, so it's arguably old at this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, blind spotting, which is uh, it's it's another in a in a line of movies that sort of uh, take place in Oakland, and it's part of Oakland's renaissance right now. And one of the only ones that's really addressing uh, gentrification in any real way, and even though that's been like covered in in other movies and on television shows, like the focal point that Blind Spotting kind of hits it that make it makes it such a focal point. I think it it hits a nerve rarely hit upon by like other film or television or you know fictions at this point. And uh, it's the directorial debut of Carlos Lopez Estrada, and it's the it was written by two sort of lifelong friends, David Diggs and Rafael Casal, who um, you know pretty much right away have just an undeniable chemistry with each other. Um, David Diggs is uh, he's a musician and an actor. He's in the group Clipping, which is uh, I don't know if you're familiar, Eric, with them. I am not, but like a sort of avant-garde hip-hop group, and he was uh, a, one of the original cast members of Hamilton, which I have not seen, but, you know, people like it. People, people are excited about Hamilton. <laughs> but um, blind spotting is, you know, as, as it's, you know, part of the sort of, like, Oakland renaissance with, you know, sharing company with Sorry to Bother You, uh, Black Panther, even though, like, you know, isn't set in Oakland, but there's definitely sequences in oakland it's it's definitely a spiritual home of the movie well really any any coogler joint at this point is an oakland-based movie right or at least in some respect absolutely the town as it's referred to affectionately um kicks as we mentioned you know from a from a few years ago yes but uh, you know blind spotting you know if there's if you're going to pick an oakland movie this summer it seems like the audiences aren't necessarily uh mobbing to it the same way they are uh for sorry to bother you and um it's definitely a lot more naturalistic than the sort of heightened environment and absurdist tendencies of sorry to bother you though it does have its own kind of like weird comic asides and uh, tonal inconsistencies <laughs> itself <laughs> But it's like, you know, it's a it's a strong movie with like a, a, a very like distinct kind of vision and addressing something very contemporary, despite the fact that gentrification is, you know, age old, as you may hear in clips from previous movies that will be sprinkled throughout this episode. Um, <laughs> Why don't y'all take a look at that sign up there? See what it says? Cash for your home. You know what that is? Bill Billboard. What are y'all, Amos and Andy? Are you stepping and he's fetching? I'm talking about the message, what it stands for. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. To bring the property value down. 
They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. It's addressed in Do the Right Thing. It's addressed in Boys in the Hood, which, like, it's also interesting, you know, to take a look at blind spotting in a in a tradition of inner city movies that like over the course of like the late 80s into the early to mid 90s there was like a certain type of movie that once they you know made a sizable impact they started to get kind of replicated with a, a formula and uh you know like after boys in the hood you know, came out in 1991 and became just like a force to be reckoned with. Like the movie did, it was a hit and it was a critical hit as well as being a box office hit. Like suddenly Oliver Stone wanted to make inner city movies. And so he had a producer credit on a couple of movies that just seemed to follow a blueprint of how an inner city movie was supposed to go. Yeah. And those are often more often than not tragedies, you know? And, uh, it's it becomes like its own kind of trap in a weird way to focus on the lives of you know marginalized people oftentimes people of color who are living in you know poverty in the inner city and to have it have to stay on a sort of like set track of tragedy in order for them to resonate just becomes a weird kind of like corner to force an art form into and so blind spotting though it does have tragic elements it manages to subvert a lot of those tendencies and um it you know while still managing to deal with police violence and police murder um it still manages to upend a lot of those sort of like the trajectory of a lot of those tragedies as like as 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 crucial as a lot of those movies were they they become like a weird kind of thematic cul-de-sac and so like it's it's interesting to watch those those sort of reworked twenty plus years later in a movie like Blind Spotting. It it is. And like I'll say this about how the, the movie's box office performance is doing because I've um found myself paying attention to this stuff more and more as I get older. And I actually really like not, I'm not going to use the term that we just used off mic disparagingly, but the numbers don't lie. I, I'm not going to fall into that shit, Joe, I promise. But like, I, I do Thank find you. an inch. <laughs> I can hear your, I can feel your eyes rolling uh, across the internet. Um, but only to use that as a way to, um, you know, it's, it just, I find a lot of, uh, I just think it's like inherently interesting to see how certain movies of a certain ilk have done, you know, like now versus like back in the era where there were kind of more of these movies or they were sort of starting to spring up more uh, that you're referring to. And uh, uh, real quick about blind spotting, like, yes, it's, it's not, it's not doing like what sorry to bother you is doing. Um, but there are some differences context that's worth putting out there. Like it's a much smaller release than sorry to bother you. Uh, but blind spotting, I think I, I just looked, it's playing at about 500 theaters, like in the country right now, which is still considered kind of a limited release. Um, and I don't think it's, it's definitely not going to go more than that, but it has made it over. And I, I, I I'm going to sense your eyes roll on this one too, or a scoff coming, but it has made uh, a little more than $3 million so far. And believe it or not, if you read box office reporting these days, at least the ones I, I read on like IndieWire and uh, Scott Mendelson writes for Forbes on, on the box office lot, like 3 million is now like the coveted, maybe not coveted so much as like, it's like the threshold that is hardest to get by 
for limited releases. So hmm. even a movie that could get really good, um, good reviews and, uh, independent, like maybe in a certain era might've automatically done like 20 million. Now it's kind of moved down to like 3 million and it's really hard for foreign films to get there for smaller movies like blind spotting. So I'm not trying to paint it as a, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to BS it. I mean, it'd be great and much more exciting if more people were seeing blind spotting, but it has at least passed this like shittily low threshold for like an indie movie or a smaller movie's release. I think it could lead to the movie doing very well on VOD as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that like it's theatrical run, which will probably wind down probably before the end of the month, like will, will serve as hopefully some marketing or attention to put on it. uh, Should audiences want to find it on VOD. So hopefully some silver lining there. But then mm-hmm. I then, you know, I started digging back to the movie that we're going to talk about later in the show in direct relation, uh, Menace to Society for for a hold up pick. And that movie, uh, not not nearly as well as Boys in the Hood did, but was a hit, too. And it made like twenty seven million dollars in 1993 Menace to Society. That kind of blew my mind because I don't think that ever got much of a wide release. I should look at that, actually, while you're talking. Um, but that is a sign, right. Of like, um, how, I mean, like, uh, inflation works the opposite way, but these movies are making less and less now, like, or, or often are making less and less. There are hits, you know, uh, that, that do come along and make that kind of money on an independent, uh, release, but they're much more rare. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Like, it's interesting to see how much fewer people are going to theaters to see a movie like blind spotting, which does have a lot in spirit, tone, theme, all that stuff to menace to society. But um, what's too bad that less people are seeing is that it does uh, maybe not wholly successfully for me, which we should get into or we can get into, mm-hmm. but like it does subvert all that, that sort of um, almost token tragedy that had to come from a lot of the movies of that era. And it doesn't subvert it at all in the way that something more bizarro and uh, singular, I guess, like Belly does. Belly just sort of says, fuck it. We're doing like our own weird, hyper real version of this sort of movie. It's become so... Williams almost felt like he was responding to the fact that these movies had become a rote sort of generic type of movie that he said, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing and make it super out there. But blind spotting right. wants to have its feet in both, you know, it kind of takes from both. It's got the surreality. It's got a heightened cinematic quality to it that despite, yeah, a low, yeah that despite a low budget, it really can come to life. And I'm glad I saw it in a big screen uh, mm-hmm. for, bo- for both sound and imagery, but it also does have its feet very much in that social realist, um, uh, potentially tragic or uh, could lead to tragic, uh, you know, tone thing going on that those early movies like South Central Boys in the Hood Juice, even though Juice uh, you've talked about in the early days of the show fits that, but also has a real nice thriller quality to it that made it stand out in some ways. Um, so, yeah, I just think like you and I have always had a lot of interest in this, these these movies. And I find we tend to talk about a new one whenever it comes out kicks from a couple years ago. But um, yeah, I don't know, like. There's, I feel like there's a lot to discuss in that realm with blind spotting, but like, um, did you find any of it? Like, what did you think of the movie overall? Because I don't even think we've really said that yet. <clears throat> yeah, I, th- I think that it's, it's, it's a really strong film. Like the the areas that it, it's the strongest, I think, is in the chemistry between the two leads. I think uh, 
David Diggs carries the movie pretty capably. I think Rafael Casal has like more to to chew on in his role because he's the wild card character who they grew up together in Oakland, which like, you know, is it has sort of historically been, you know, rough around the edges in certain, you know, like sections and now has become kind of like uh, a boutique area the way a lot of, you know, sections of the Bay Area have become, you know, with a lot of tech money coming in. And so they're the 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 life that they grew up knowing is kind of systematically being squeezed out. There's no room for them anymore. And so you have a a black character played by David Diggs and a white character played by Raphael Cassell, who's, uh, you know, he's the wild card character. He is like in the sort of mean streets dynamic between Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro. He's the Robert De Niro character. And he kind of like plays that uh, unpredictability like to a T, you know, he like, he's a shit talker. He's like, he's really impulsive and he's a lot of fun to watch. Like, as much as like the burden of being the straight man is on David Diggs um, and therefore the sort of like dramatic anchor in the movie is like his burden. Uh, like you just get to watch uh, the, the charisma of Raphael just like kind of go nuts. And like that's there's a lot of pleasure to that. And there's just like a lot of strength in there playing off one another. Mm. There's um, just like. I th- I think in just the the commentary on uh, gentrification is just like it's something that needs to be picked apart and investigated as it becomes like a sort of detrimental part of stamping out what cities have historically meant, what sections of cities have meant, who they've belonged to historically, like as it's sort of like becoming uh, a, a a bygone conclusion that it's just like, well, this is how the, you know, how it works. Like people just, there's more people and more people need more space and more space just means more people are going to get squeezed to the margins. And it's just sort of like that kind of cynical uh, shrug and deal with it uh, response is just like, it's frightening when you're dealing with people and in their homes and what they've always associated as their homes. So I think it's like a subject matter that's like, like it's crucial that it be investigated. And I think the movie does it like pretty effectively. And like, it's the, there's a, like a really hilarious opening scene where all like the character dynamic is sort of mapped out between the two friends as they're sitting in another friend's car. And they start to realize like how many guns are in the car all at once. And David Diggs character is on parole and he's facing like the last few days of his parole and he has to just keep his record clean so he can just like get past all of this and move on with his life. And like, so there's like a tension, but there's also a hilarity to the, like the absurdism of the circumstance. And, uh, and I don't know, like there's, there's something that's just like that the movie is like really strong in that's their interplay. That's the commentary on like just gentrification, like as it's becoming this runaway nightmare, Mm. but there's also like dramatic peaks that the movie doesn't quite earn. And there's just like some tonal inconsistencies that make it harder to reach those peaks that it's like kind of aspiring to get to. You know, there's just like sections of uh, that seem like they don't know whether they want to be comical or dramatic. And 
you know, there's like a, the, the whole backstory as to why the main character was in jail in the first place um, is told with like, you know, a stylistic exuberance, but also just like it's confusingly uh, just it's confusingly captured in terms of tone. And I'm yeah. just like, I don't know what's going on. And it, it reminded me of like the weird shift in Friday towards the end where it becomes like a social drama for a section. Yeah. John Witherspoon sitting ice cube down to tell him like the effects of, you know, violence. And it was just like, I, I, it felt more obligatory in that movie than it did like sort of naturally at home in the narrative itself. Mm hmm. And like that, that's what sort of like jarred me. And there's like a need to tie everything together in blind spotting that like that doesn't necessarily that like I think when you're when you're sort of zoomed out from the script, like you can see like, oh, we wanted to put this at the end where they confront the police violence and they sort of work back in the the uh spoken word poetry that the characters seem to be seeding throughout the film. And it like, it doesn't quite coalesce in a way that's convincing or rewarding to the narrative. It feels forced. And like, it's just like, and the more I think about it, the more sort of out of the spell of the movie, you know, a few weeks later, yeah, it does kind of like jut out as something that doesn't really like fit comfortably. And like, you know, we talked about that with, sorry to bother you where it's like there it's messy and that messiness means that you're like kind of mulling it over and it's not, it's not sitting well in a way that like, uh, that then lends itself to kind of like rinsing off and being forgotten. Mm. Yeah. But I don't know, I don't know that that necessarily benefits the effectiveness and power of like a streamlined narrative, you know? Yeah. It's it's it is a mixed bag, but it, it to not just I don't want to totally repeat what you're saying, but yeah, that's sort of the what gives blind spotting. It's it's what makes it interesting, makes it worth discussing, going to see. Um, but yeah, I can't help but think um, that I don't know. Like I I I've had more time with Sorry to Bother You than I have with Blind Spotting, but I am like kind of dying to see Sorry to Bother You again. Hopefully mm-hmm. at a theater. I, I'm like, I feel like I need to make time to see that again in the theater before it goes. But I'm, I can't wait to watch it again. Blind spotting to me feels like a really good one-time watch. And mm-hmm. ma- that's just maybe a personal reaction. Maybe I'll think differently uh, if it's, you know, when it's uh, streaming somewhere. And I'm like, well, shit, I should watch this movie again. Because I, I did enjoy it, even despite a lot of, like, that I agree with a lot of what you're saying. These, like, tonal inconsistencies or... Um, the ending specifically with blind spot and it really like swings for the fences in a way that I think is attributed to the fact that these are like first time screenwriters, uh, mm-hmm. like young people made this movie. The director made it's his de- debut. He's done a bunch of music videos as I understood. I'm sure he's, they're experienced in their way, but the fact that this is like their first feature is, mm-hmm. is what makes the movie like alive, but that it's, it also just like, sorry to bother you. They'll, they'll do things that are just so <clears throat> against the grain, especially in a very, um, uh, monoculture feeling, uh, movie world right now that they just make choices that you normally wouldn't see. But does that inherently mean it's good? No. Or that you like it in the moment? No, but uh, I liked wrestling with that as the movie went on, but yeah. uh, there there is an element to that ending that I don't want to give away or anything. I don't think you did either, but mm-hmm. it goes 
it goes to a place where it, it, it seemed to be focusing on theme and narrative uh, not tying more than actual like, you know, we have to believe what we're seeing could actually happen. I don't know if that's the same right. issue you had, but yeah, it feels like suddenly I'm in one of the dream sequences in the movie, or there's at least one significant yeah, dream yeah. sequence, right? That, that makes yeah. sense as it's happening in the movie that it's this dream nightmare Absolutely. thing, but now we've mixed the two and I love the boldness, but it, it almost feels like, fuck, if you would have thought this out or maybe dra- gone for another draft or shot something else, I heard that there is another version. Uh, there's another, at least sort of like final, final scene, that was different than what we got. That would have been a much more um, depressing note for the movie to end on. I do like that they find hope and that it somehow gets mm-hmm. there, but that feels like a massive leap to find hope at the end, given especially what we just saw in the, you know, like the penultimate, like 15 minute, like big climax. So um, it's a weird high wire act that doesn't totally work, but I feel like uh, this director, these actors, these writers, like they'll, they'll probably make something more exciting. It, it feels like the type of thing where they'll do something better because they're only going to learn and get better. But like out, right. of the, out of the gate, they know how to make a movie. They just take more chances than most filmmakers would. And uh, it's, it's, yeah. a mix, it's a mixed bag. You almost knocked me down, man. The word is excuse me. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Not only did you knock me down, you stepped on my brand new white Air Jordans that I just bought. And that's all you can say is excuse me. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. I'll fuck you up quick two times. Two times. Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Motherfuck gentrification. Well, just <laughs> fuck. As I understand it, this is a free country. Man can live wherever he wants. Free country? Free country? Man, oh I should fuck you up for saying that stupid shit alone. Yo, man, your Jordans are fucked up. Still, why'd you move back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn. Uh, it was interesting because they, the. I saw Raphael get interviewed, uh, I think on the AV club and he was talking about the comparison to do the right thing, which I didn't necessarily like tonally see, um, uh, the do the right thing every summer comes back up. Cause one, it's one of my favorite movies and two, the summers just keep getting hotter and hotter, which is like a focal point of that movie is that it takes place on the hottest day in Brooklyn in the, uh, the summer of 1989. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were talking about how like, you know, how sad it is that like how he's flattered that the movie gets uh, like compared to it, but also that like that movie hasn't waned in relevance is sort of like a, a sad reflection of like how far we haven't come. Right. Um, but like that, that movie is such an anomaly um, in that there are so many things about it that, itself swings for the fences that it like breaks the fourth wall has characters talking directly to the camera not the entire time but just in weird kind of like fever driven sections uh the sort of bold opening of having rosie perez dance to you know public enemy so good in front of, in front of what looks like the sort of like cosby show opening of like <laughs> those brownstone fronts and like there's just so much about the movie that coalesces into what I argue is a masterpiece. I think the movie is an, just a complete masterwork mm-hmm. and that everything that like shouldn't work does and everything feeds into this climax 
that is 100% earned and what becomes ultimately, though the movie is hilarious and alive and kinetic, it still does have elements of being tragic in its own way. Mm. And like, I think blind spotting reaches for those, um, those dramatic heights and especially in like the last 15 minutes as you were describing, but doesn't quite get there. I think the movie kind of peaks like five to 10 minutes earlier than that. And then it just kind of goes into this weird epilogue section where it has to resolve you know, the sort of like police, uh, the police having murdered somebody in cold blood, essentially earlier in the film, it has to wrap that narrative up, which like, I don't know, like maybe you didn't have to because that narrative isn't wrapped up, you know, like, and it's like, it seems to be the nightmare we can't wake up from. Maybe it is unresolved in the movie because it like, it basically forces the hand of having the main characters confront the cop through a series of uh you know like magical circumstances that you equated to uh training day you're like oh, this is like the only way like this reminded me of training day and how like like how did you get this wallet Holmes? like what oh what really like this the is coincidences okay. just rack up yeah. yeah it's too much it's too much exactly and i i'm sorry i'm gonna spoil it there's a spoken word performance like during this confrontation that just stretches I don't know if it's credibility but it just like it basically if it does work for you I think it's unfair to do to the other actors in the scene because it's essentially the main character's performance David Diggs delivers this like impressive spoken word piece um, but dramatically it doesn't fun function naturalistically maybe that's the point but it also i think is just like not <laughs> to give the other actors nothing to do but kind of stand teary-eyed in front of it right. is just like, i think like just it's not well directed i'm just like uh like it's volatile for sure and it's tense yes but like i don't think it pays off in the way that it's intending to yeah and like a a movie that like crescendos and climaxes like do the right thing, which maybe it's not fair to compare the two, but like everything fuels into this like into this climax that's like that's horrific and like impossible to deal with, but perfectly fits and gives you a sort of complete picture that's be- that it's been building towards the entire film, hmm. and. Yeah, rewatching that movie recently, it was just like, you know, he beautifully lays out the humanity of every character and the impossibility of the situation. And it's just like, that wasn't Spike Lee's first movie. It was his, you know, third feature. So he had he had time to sort of like improve upon whatever kind of like, you know, early early missteps he may have made with She's Gotta Have It and School Days, but like you know, so to to compare the two maybe is unfair because it's like the first feature for not just the director but for the writers and the actors. Um, so like it's 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 tough, but you know I'm I'm excited that it exists and that it played in you know the Cinerama Dome at the ArcLight, which to That's an awesome. audience to an audience of ten maybe when it seats six hundred. But like still it's just like good they fucking carved out this space and like it's a it's a big vision 
not all of it like lands for me dramatically necessarily, but it's a, it's a big loud needs to be reckoned with vision that I was like happy to see in the biggest, loudest way possible, you know? So that's great. great. uh, Summer, summer, as we mentioned off mic is kind of becomes our slow time. Cause it's like a lot of the movies were less interested in covering, but like stuff like this, where it does offer a genuine counterpoint to the lack of variety. It offers a variety that doesn't seem to exist. And, um, you know, like I think you mentioned on the last episode there, like indie cinema, uh, is, you know, it is offering that, you know, variety that seems to be lacking more and more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think blind spotting like Sardar too is, is really exciting in that it's so, um, unabashedly uh, pushes against the status quo, you know? And like, we get enough of that in, especially in the fucking summer, right? Like you and I also off mic, we're laughing about the new mission impossible movie that neither of us has seen yet, but you know, I want to, but it's like the, just, we're like, the, you just kind of feel like you get, there's just the sameness to everything. And it, that even if the, it, this iteration of mission impossible is really fun. It just it sometimes can just be really like, I don't know, deflating to just know, like feel like, you know, the movie already. Cause how, yeah, you, know, you feel like you've seen it already. Yeah, like you've yeah. seen, you've seen that strained, tortured look on Tom Cruise's face time and time again, which increasingly just feels really mean to put him through, you know, he's been through enough, you know, he's a Scientologist, Jesus, like he's been through. Enough. <laughs> exactly. And now they're, you know, now the, this latest one is just him. What What is the billboard you're seeing in L.A. that he's skydiving with a gas mask or something? And that's the yeah, yeah. The, he's got like his and it, it, the look is just sheer terror. And it made me rethink. I was like, has it always been that way? Because like <laughs> maybe I'm just miss like I'm mistaking it for the Bond movies where he's just like he's always so fucking cool and nothing affects him. But like maybe Ethan Hunt's is that his name? Yes. Uh, like his character like it could be that he's always just like (laughs) and like you know like i forgot and like maybe the last one i actually saw which was mission impossible 2 his hair was just too busy blowing in the breeze that he didn't have time to look as tortured and panicked as he seems to look in all the billboards around town exactly he was well he was ducking from all the the doves too you know the john wood doves were coming at him fast it's a lot of shit to step through, you know? Exactly. In many ways. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah, just, I, I think, um, I, I like everything you said about blind spot and I think it's a good place to, to, to maybe, uh, pivot soon here to our, to our hold up. But I, 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 uh, last thing I want to say is like, uh, something if, you know, if anybody is on the fence or just hearing about this movie is what I really like something I did really, really appreciate it besides the, you know, the ambition, the filmmaking, the attempts to make it cinematic and stylish and have its own thing, liked all that stuff. But like blind spotting could have so easily been a didactic movie. And it's mm-hmm. it really isn't even when it sort of goes off the rails a little bit at the end, like it never um, falls into like something like it, the, to me, one of the worst examples uh, would be like crash the Paul Haggis movie crash that fucking I have to Mm -hmm. remind myself one best picture. Um, They're not the same movie, but they could easily slip into similar territory. And um, there's like perhaps a moment in blind spotting with a gun and a child having it that could maybe feel like it's something from crash. But like 
it, it's it there's more to it than that and it could be that bad and blind spotting is definitely not that and i'm glad you know that's nice but also yeah just I'm, i just appreciate it that it's never overly didactic i mean even our hold up pick i think could be accused um uh, of falling into didacticism occasionally uh more than blind spotting perhaps so uh, I, I appreciate it when a movie like this that has social consciousness or has a specific thing it's really trying to push on the audience to help an audience see, perhaps, you know, fingers crossed, some people realize this for the first time if they're not aware of gentrification or, or you know, things like this. Like, um, y- you hope for that, but sometimes I just I want them to also have a faith in the audience. And I feel like they did for the most part with blind spotting. So, um, yeah, keep an eye out for this movie. I think I think it's totally like also has an entertainment value with the style and the way it's made that keeps yeah. it, that keeps it from being that way. Yeah, I think it has like a, a a genuine kineticism and unpredictability that I think, you know, it's comparisons to do the right thing, you know, though they're it's hard to live up to a masterpiece. I don't think they're unwarranted. I think that they do share a kind of like aliveness that you know feels lacking in a a lot of movies lately and so Mm -hmm. you know it's got a contagious energy that you know as the heat is uh beating down on us you know you know maybe find a a reprieve in an air-conditioned theater and and feel the energy when it's being (laughs) pounded out of you (laughs) otherwise (laughs) you can feel the message uh to Um, Yeah, to quote, don't be a menace to South Central. Exactly. Walter. That, that was my other thing is I, at least it didn't it, it doesn't feel like blind spotting would be fall into the, the cliches that were so like easily lampooned in something like don't be a menace. But it is kind of a message like there are scenes like that in the movie, but it, it, it works for the most part. But uh, why don't we talk about the uh, the real menace? What do you think? Yeah, let's 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 pivot. Meeny, 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 meeny. Our next movie is an original movie. How's that? Yes, it Our is. next movie is named Menace to Society, and this is one of the strongest and bleakest and most powerful movies I've ever seen about the crisis conditions of young blacks in the inner city. If Boys in the Hood shows the hope, this fine movie shows the despair. Menace to Society is a powerful and important film directed by the Hughes brothers, they resist any temptation to manufacture a phony upside to what is obviously a tragic story. I, I agree with you. This is one of the best films I've seen this year. Yes, it is. And I'll talk about it in just movie terms because obviously it's onto the social issues and it has them in the right way without being, uh, you know, goody goody. It, it, it maintains its level of despair. But these guys know how to direct a picture. Mm-hmm. This is, there isn't an uninteresting shot in this film. Mm-hmm. It's a great. Yes, it is. It's a great film. Yes, it is. Uh, Menace to Society. As much as blind spotting is itself like a subversion of what we've come to expect from inner city movies, um, Menace to Society was also one of those because, like, even in the short period where you know, like, uh, that these movies like existed from the late '80s into the early '90s, there did seem to be a kind of earnest seriousness to the gravity of a lot of the the tragedies that were being depicted especially with a movie like boys in the hood where it was like that kind of, that's what sold it to a larger audience was that like, there was an importance to covering it. And like, and so, uh, menace to society seemed to, um, be, be trying to upend what felt like moralizing 
And there was like, there's a distinct kind of nihilism to the movie that like, that seems to fly in the face of what could be argued as like sentimentalism in boys in the hood. Um, you know, and straight out of Compton from a few years ago, uh, O'Shea Jackson jr. Asks, uh, you know, like as Ice Cube asks Easy E, like, didn't you say that Boys in the Hood was like an after-school special? <laughs> and I think that that was that was common. That it was kind of like it was met with a dismissiveness because there was like a overly over seriousness to the takeaway from the movie. Which, like, if you watch it now, like, I've I feel like Boys in the Hood holds up just as like a piece of filmmaking. Like yeah. it's super impressive like i remember seeing it at the they brought it back at the laurelhurst i think in like 2012 or something like that it's a i saw it several times in the theater the summer it came out in between screenings of point break which it came out i think on the same weekend (laughs) um and uh like it was just like it was a just a seismic move like it had such a tremendous impact and like it's just like a beautifully executed film like the character development just the sheer like the look and feel of the movie the sound design like it's an incredibly well-made movie and even though like it's sort of you you may feel like it milks the tragedy like i if you're basically if you're searching for a criticism of the movie like it's that is that it it like sort of hyper you know, I don't. I don't even know what you would argue against it. But to get to the actual film that we're discussing, *Menace to Society*, <laughs> they're like immediately right off the bat with the opening scene, which is so jarring. Yeah. Um, is like is a complete nihilistic descent into the potential, just like violence that could envelop you at any given minute in like in Watts, which is where this movie takes place, and it's just like, it's an interesting, I I know that um, like the Hughes brothers, which is that this was their debut um, followed up by dead presidents, which Mm. did you pick that as a holdup movie or was it where you were always threatening to, it was, I was either threatening to, but we have talked about it, but early days of the show. um, Yeah. yeah. I I don't think it was the whole uh, holdup pick, but anyway, yeah, I I'm fond of that movie. So it seemed like there was, there was more of a draw towards, like a Scorsese level crime movie, um, like exploration than it was to belong to a sort of urban melodrama like boys in the hood was like, it seemed to be like a distinct separation from the moralizing that could be that you could claim boys in the hood has like menace to society was like, look, there's, there's like discussions of morals in this movie with like certain, certain characters but it's a free fall into potential mayhem at any given moment with like, you know, you've got the, the character of O dog, who is the, he's the essentially the Johnny boy character from mean streets. You know, he's, he's Robert De Niro's character. And so you, you have a parallel to blind spotting with like, you have the, the one character who seems potentially tethered to a morality, even though Kane, who's the main character in menace to society it's arguable. He's got like, he's got a stable home life with his grandparents after his own parents were killed during his childhood. But like he himself is pretty morally ambiguous. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have much that's tethering him other than his grandparents 
and his need to look out for a you know a child being raised by Jada Pinkett Smith mm-hmm. was adorable in this movie. <laughs> and so like there there's just like there's a there's a coexistence of like of just like absolute gritty horror with like there's a humor at work which like boys in the hood also is like it's a hilarious i think it's honestly ice cube's funniest performance oh and it's not in a comedy yeah so it's just like he because he's at his most naturalistic and i think he's naturally fucking funny i agree um but menace of society has like these moments that like are funny while not shutting down like the terror of the moment. Mm. So you're just like, Oh, how do I deal with this? And so it's like this weird roller coaster through a, a, like a terrifying nihilism in the movie. And I guess like before we go any further into the, the film itself mm. and whether it holds up, how it holds up over time. Um, what, like what's your, cause this is my pick, correct? Or is this like a mutual, is this a first time mutual hold up pick between <laughs> the two of us? No, I'll give it to you. It was your choice for sure. Um, but like, what's, what was your experience in one first seeing it and just like your, your sort of involvement with the movie as a whole? Mm, yeah. Uh, seeing it on, on video for me, uh, cause <laughs> Um, probably just too young to make it into theaters uh, for that in Point Break, but man, or no, that would have been Boys in the Hood for you in, in Point yeah, Break. Yeah, this came out summer of 1993. Right, okay, so either way, did not see in a theater, um, but it right. had already um, amongst, especially my uh, like my best buddy growing up and his older brother who kind of like introduced us to things like this, like these kind of movies or just like uh, Dr. Dre albums and stuff at the time. Like he was the, mm-hmm. uh, a big gateway in terms of a culture like this, but that this movie had an, um, almost like a mythology to it before I saw it because of the way he talked about it. Because, uh, I think I was already watching Siskel and Ebert shows at that time. And they <laughs> both loved the movie, both loved menace to society. So it had a, a mythology in my mind where I was like, I almost feel like I knew it in a way um, mm-hmm. because certain things had been described like, holy shit, what happens in this movie? You know, like it, it in a way, um, it, glad that I've grown with the movie, especially because it was more of like a, what, like crazy shit happens in this movie. Like it's really intense, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then just growing, um, then actually seeing it. Um, I remember thinking that it was a much more, um, I was probably too young to really process everything that's going on, especially, um, at a time earlier when I'd even see, I was younger, when I saw boys in the hood, it's not like I understood what Lawrence Fishburne was talking about when he mentions gentrification. That was like the first time I had heard that. Right. So there's all these things in movies like, uh, menace to society and boys in the hood that I'm only just seeing for the first time, but I liked them as crime stories, uh, especially menace because it did have that feel of like Goodfellas or the best, like Scorsese crime movies. Like it's more of a noir, but, uh, it, it seemed like that's all it was to me at the time. But as I've seen it through different points in my life, like in college, this became a, like it sort of resurfaced amongst friends of mine where we like, we locked onto the, like the bad, the like bad people. Like um, I don't want to use a reductive term like that. People uh, that we see do very bad things like kill people, steal, blah, blah, blah. Like antiheroes. And thank you, Jesus. Yeah. There's a word for it. Antiheroes that are funny and being entertained by them and learning how far you can push that uneasiness with like, 
it goes much more intense in this movie than even like Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. But they, it's a similar mm-hmm. thing of like you, they, they, the Hughes brothers do a great job of giving that criminal allure that makes you want to watch the movie. That makes you lean in and get immersed in that. Aided with the fact that as I got older and in college and really started getting into like film style of like seeing like this being their debut, they really do throw a lot at it like they 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 do and similar to blind spot and i think these are great movies to sort of talk at least at the same time about because there are things that now as i am uh like just revisiting it the other day it's on netflix now it's so easy to watch like i uh catching up that like now i see things that sort of um take away from the stuff that I liked the most before. Now I, I don't just see a neo-noir or an anti-hero movie with like comedic elements. I see like what is actually quite didactic at times where I'm like, oh man, this movie yeah. really lays it on thick, but I'm okay with that. Uh, but I did kind of like this movie less on this, I think my third viewing now, third or fourth, uh, like in my life. I, I, I like it. I liked it less this viewing, but I still think it's power and it's, Power as a debut film and Lorenz Tate, who I didn't know until I saw this movie. I think he is a freaking lightning rod and just like I get why he became, you know, got more work and showed up in more movies. Um, there's still a lot to like. But, yeah, I kind of liked it less on, on this viewing. Interesting, because like uh, <laughs> as a counterpoint to something like Boys in the Hood, where it was just like it's clear who, you know, like when Ricky is killed, spoiler alert. 20 27 year old spoiler alert um you know he's clearly like a sort of virtuous character and he's like he's basically like it's it's an absolute tragedy whereas you'd like take people who are responsible for you know things that are kind of awful throughout the course of the movie and trying to find the morality in them i think that's what sort of like was the severe contrast to like the potential moralizing of a movie like boys in the hood yeah and that and how that like nihilism was like you know potentially like it was it 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 was electric and its potential mm. and basically finding the morality and like the the sort of the grimness of the conclusion of the movie which this is another tragedy you know the movie ends like pretty horrifically that might be what i responded to this time too you know the, that felt the uh, feeling and recalling the fact that they all ended this way but sorry go ahead yeah, well, I just think that, like, that's when, like, I, I think otherwise, what's the what's the yang to the yin of the, like, where is the drama of this movie? If, you know, like, we, we kind of talk about how if movies are just sort of like a, a nosedive into fatalism, then they're as atonal as a movie where only happy stuff happens. Right. So like, you know, there, there is teased throughout hope for a better life, you know, and like the potential between, uh, Kane and, uh, can't remember Jada Pinkett Smith's character's name, but, uh, her, her character and the, the sort of romantic potential and like his role in Anthony, the kid's life, like there is, it is like a lot more didactic than it probably came across when it came out in 1993. Right. Cause like there's a speech by Charles Dutton where he's like, you know, he's basically explaining his son Sharif and his, his becoming a Muslim as, you know, like if this gives his life purpose, like then he's all for it. Cause otherwise what do you have? Like the hunt is on and you're the prey. Mm-hmm. 
I think is verbatim what he says. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. That 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 just stops the movie dead for me. That 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 scene, and I like Charles S. Dutton, but that was one of those moments that really stuck out like a sore thumb for me. This time, huh. yeah. Yeah, I don't know, because I feel like movies, like, there's a naturalism, like, as heightened as the movie can be at times, there's, like, an overall grit and naturalism that makes those moments allowable, because movies are as didactic, if not more, nowadays, and, like, they're, and so, like, hearing Charles Dutton give a speech, I'm like, good, thank God, thank God Charles Dutton is talking to me again, even though, you know. (laughs) 25 years i don't mind keep talking to me <laughs> and like uh who, who else bill duke you know you done fucked up don't oh, you that's that's great that's that scene is great because that is like one of these heightened surreal moments you know kane is in trouble with the police yeah bill duke is yeah very memorable in a short role yeah i don't know there's just, i think that there's like an overall virtuosity to the a mm-hmm. lot of the filmmaking uh you know e- like there's a scene, the one of the early carjacking scenes where uh, Kane, the main character's cousin, is like killed in front of him, and it's like the the kind of coexistence of like weird, uh, squirmy comedy. It, it, it doesn't qualify as comedy, but like Kane's cousin has his head blown off, and it's awful. It's ho- horrifying. Like one of the most visceral, horrific depictions of violence. Like, you know, you could, you could imagine pull body pulled out of the car. The carjacker jumps in and <laughs> squeegees the window clean as he's peeling right, off. Right. Like that's a, there's like an absurdity to that. That's like that, that, that it's that weird sort of like, it's not funny, but it also is just like, there's a, there's a bluntness to the reality of it. Right. That like was jarring in a way that was kind of like unseen before. Yeah. And that whole sequence is fucking heartbreaking with Sharif cradling uh, Harold, which is uh, Kane's cousin, and being like, I'm, I'm staying with his body, even though he's dead. It's not you right. Know? He keeps yelling, it's not right. Because the rest, yeah. Yes, it's horrifying. And like, and there's just like, there's, there's a level to that, like the scope of that kind of grim vision and the virtuosity of the filmmaking that I think still that holds it up and I expose somebody, I put it on casually cause I knew I was going to like, we were going to watch it. Mm-hmm. I just put it on when I had like company over and they were just like, you're just like, it started and they're like, what the fuck? Like you're just casually putting this on and they had never seen it before. <laughs> so to the uninitiated, I just plunged them into the, the horror of the movie. Well, and uh, that's yeah. the only way to do it. The movie does that, as you said, you know, and, and yeah, yeah. But there are, I just even want to focus a little bit longer on the scene, the carjacking scene you're talking about, where I think it really shows where, for me, the movie still very much works. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm like, oh, this movie sucks now. I'm just like more conflicted by it now. Yeah. Or it was okay. because it's like, um, the, they were uh, 21 when they made this movie, the Hughes brothers. Uh, wow. Fucking A, man. 21 years old, right? And, uh, and that leads to things that I think work and also maybe don't all puzzle piece together for me uh, mm-hmm. in terms of filmmaking. But some of the stuff that just works in a sense that I think it takes a young, angry. Well, all right. I don't want to assume that they're angry, but this this film has anger behind it. Understandable anger and sadness and all that. But like they really lock in on something that I don't think you see in movies very often. But the his cousin is killed. He's thrown in the car. And even before Sharif is there to try to just be with him. 
you see they folk the way it's framed is you've already seen the blood and the violence so thankfully they're not lingering on the actual like head wound but you see his cousin's hand shaking like the last sort of remnants of his nerves and awful it's, it's awful it's so awful and honestly the only other thing that comes to mind right now that is something that's played for laughs in a movie like the rock where Nicolas cage makes a joke about a guy that just got his head crushed and he's like why is his leg still moving and it's played for laughs like menace to society so I guess my point is you don't see this. You don't see violence being lingered on very often like this. And it's, it's, it's even more um, visceral than something like taxi driver where you, you know, it rewinds back down the hall and you see the wake of violence. Like that's, that's another example, but this one is just so effective. And I really loved it because it felt like a young director's move to be like, this is some, I'm going to really show you, the, the just deep, awful sadness of this, you know, the waste of it. And that, just seeing that handshaking was really, really effective. So I locked in on stuff like that on this rewatch and really appreciated it. And I was like, fuck, this is just so bold. The the way he um, tells his backstory very briefly, but you feel like Samuel Jackson, who plays his father, you feel like Kane's, he plays Kane's dad in the movie. You feel like he's in the movie for the entire movie, but he's really only in it for like a scene or two. Like that was the stuff where I was like, that is so impressive the way we enter this world and the way they, um, I don't think this falls into didacticism, but like it does very conveniently, but I think effectively match up like how Kane was raised and how we see him almost unknowingly repeat the same behavior to children. And we see mm-hmm. the cycles in the movie, all that stuff really works. I was very much still wrapped up in it. What lost me as I watched it this time more was the kind of um, messiness of the narrative in that it's almost like a set of vignettes, like short scenes strung together. Right. And the fact that time is very elusive in the movie. Maybe these are things that I'll appreciate on another watch down the road, because I think some of that had to be intentional that that they're, they're, he's sort of fated to die, Kane, because mm-hmm. of like his circumstances and, you know, all these things that we see in the movie. But the movie is so random and it's just, I guess. Part of that might be the point. It could come from anywhere. How he actually dies is not one of the other four dominoes that they've been setting up to fall throughout the movie, like Bill Duke, the cop. Like That kind of just fizzles away. And for some reason, this time, it seemed like messy filmmaking or uh, trying to build suspense or tension in a way that didn't feel like totally earned because they didn't want to give it the time it might have needed. If there's like a real investigation going, you know, I don't know, like... Uh, right. that, that and just to, I want to hand it off back to you, but like the Charles S. Dutton scene, even his two scenes just feel like, man, I remember at the time Menace to Society was seemed as that nihilistic response to Boys in the Hood sort of sentimentalizing or even finding some hope in a character that gets out. Menace doesn't really have that. Like the characters that seem best in this movie are almost all of them dead by the end. Um uh, with what happens to Sharif, you know, it's such a, another sad element at the end of the movie. But um, but just that this movie's pretty on the nose too. But uh, again, you're saying that even now you still kind of appreciated that. You you're okay with that, especially putting the movie in context. If I'm understanding what you're saying, yeah. But I will I I will echo your sense of it that like st- structurally, yeah, it definitely kind of like the the vignettes did kind of like instead of like kind of playing into 
a, a ratcheting tension and a steady escalation. There were just sort of like blocks and like weird, like sequences that just, you could have kind of rearranged them anywhere at certain points. Like there's a sequence where he's, uh, he's cooking crack and that seems to kind of come out of nowhere. And like, right. they, they all sort of feed into each other. Like I need money. Cause like, or I like I just stole someone's rims, so now I have a little bit of money, and I could use that to buy crack or you know to sell. Yeah. And like it's just sort of like it all it did fit thematically, but it did also feel like it wasn't playing into the overall arc of the movie. It was just like demonstrating something, and it was kind of like, huh, like what, like. Maybe it was just the the crack cooking scene, especially where I was like, I don't know where this like fits mm-hmm. like overall, you know. And so like that did start to feel because they're like as the movie kind of tips over the edge into its like la- its concluding section, it picks up a lot of steam. Yeah, like you know, so therefore like the sort of middle sections are are kind of like confusingly meandering at times. It did feel that way. Yeah, it's, it picks up steam in a way that, like, um, yeah, they really stack the deck against Kane. I mean, obviously, again, I think this is all purposeful to the movie that, that the Hughes brothers wanted to tell. But, like, it's not just the cops closing in on him. It's a it's a sort of quasi-friend that's always at parties that he gets that he beats the shit out mm-hmm. of near the end. And Lots it's like, of- yeah, it just, yeah, exactly. It feels like after a while, like, why, why did the movie need this scene? Like, there's enough going on. But I guess, again, the onslaught of all of it is to the point, right? Or it is the point. Um, but I just felt like the movie works best in those, in the vignette, in the vignette structure of the movie. Like it works best in those hangout mean street, Goodfellas, Scorsese esque scenes. It works best like that. For I'm me. glad you mentioned those after saying vignette, which sounds like a crime family. <laughs> it does. Hey, it's the vignettes. <laughs> and, uh, and, but it works, it works best in those slice of life kind of at times, horrifically comical moments where, uh, Lorenz Tate, uh, O-Dog kills a homeless guy that just wants like to give him a blowjob for drugs. You know, like that's a, that's a wants, wants questionable. Does he want to No, but no. is he willing to willing sure. to. Fair enough. Thank you. Uh, I hilariously in dopey at menace to South central while drinking your juice in the hood. Yes, it and is. He says, like, Can I get directions to Crenshaw? Huh? I'll suck your dick. <laughs> And I remember not being able to get my breath because I was laughing so hard in the theater when I saw that. By the um, way, that was a that is a potential hold up for me. That movie, I don't know if it's any good anymore, but I did think "Don't Be a Menace" was a very funny spoof at the time. Uh, yeah, I I remember that being very contentious uh-huh. uh, on Siskel and Ebert. Actually, like they were, uh, I can't. I think it was maybe Siskel who thought it was like deeply, deeply offensive that you were parodying like movies that were so kind of like serious socially mm-hmm. you know that like that sounds like, like siskel to me <laughs> yeah yeah but um yeah it was uh i i saw it in the theater summer of 1993 menace to society that is yeah. and uh just in- interesting the the sort of legacy it leaves behind did you know that Sh- who sharif was originally supposed to be played by oh no tell me tupac oh wow yeah, you know I like that actor, and I'm, I can't think his name that does play Sharif, but I've seen him in other stuff. Um, yeah, he's in Boys in the Hood. He, he takes Ricky's ball when Ricky is a kid. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, he and he's really good, but man, that Tupac Shakur in that role—I mean, 
Man, you know, it's one of those what if scenarios then. I did I did not realize. Is there any story as to why he ended up not doing it? Because he wasn't in a movie yet at that point or well, no, he he had been in juice. Oh, I think right. that like he they had worked out the schedule to where he could uh he was gonna shoot Poetic Justice and then gonna go straight into Menace Society. And I don't know if he was like up for other roles, but like they wanted him for Sharif and then during a table read he was just kinda like he was like, I need, I need more. I need to know. I need to know why I'm Muslim. Like, if that's my care, I need to know. And like, they were just like, Hey, can we just get through the reading? You know, and they were just like reading the script, and he was just like, Nah, this isn't. And then like, they walked him outside, and he just like left, basically. Like oh. whatever, arg- whatever argument ensued outside, he just ended up like not coming back. And then they had volatility between them. Like he wound up getting into a physical altercation with the Hughes brothers later. Um, Man, I'm remembering some of this now. Yeah. Like being on the news. Yeah. I mean, just imagine the, his sheer level of charisma. Cause I love, uh, Vaunty sweet. I think it's the actor's name who plays Sharif. Cause there's like a beautiful understated quality to the performance. Yes. Whereas like Tupac, he has such charisma that like seeing, that like a kind of not a secondary character, but definitely not one of the the main characters. The way Kane and O Dog are sort of built as the main characters, um, like seeing some someone who's like you know one of not one of the main characters played by someone with as much charisma as Tupac has. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. that really would have been interesting. However, I think Vontae Sweet does like an incredible job. You know, in the movie. He does, and, like, and that's tough too because that character is the literal didactic character. He's, yeah, he's yeah. that guy to his friends. Like he's always yeah. on them about yeah smoking, you know, and reinforcing stereotypes. He's always on them about that. And yet you're right, there has to be a a sweetness to him, a genuine like because you have to buy that these guys would even want to hang out with him still, you know. <laughs> and you do, you never. I never doubt. Like he's always there, and I'm like, you could just ask like, why does he keep hanging out with these guys? But it's like, no, nah, there's <laughs> sort of a that's that's part of the it's almost like a a simple beauty to it but it becomes also tragic that they all kind of got each other's back but it's like maybe it would be better if they were able to separate these people or if some of them were able to take other opportunities uh that that don't work out but that's a different that's a completely different character of tupac plays and what at least on the surface to me would have been interesting is is you would have expected, especially at the time after Juice, that he would have gotten the O dog. He would have been cast as the O dog character, but right. that that would have been nice countercasting. And there there leads me to another at least intelligent um, idea from the Hughes brothers of trying to at least not do the same to trying to subvert uh, right. what we expect. Um, and even as a young, twenty one years old filmmaker like that, that shows a gift, uh, like an intelligence as a filmmaker at a young age, but also that they were natural natural uh, cinematic storytellers. And, you know, another thing that I thought about after watching and just was sort of looking up the Hughes brothers is like, it's, I don't know what all the reasons is, but they have seemed to have difficulty getting movies made. Like they haven't made that many movies. Mm -hmm. They made dead president soon after this because menace was was a hit. Um, Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the both Siskel and Ebert were quite disappointed by dead presidents as a follow-up. They both raved about menace uh, I watched uh, them last night at work, uh, both of them and dead presidents for them was sort of a, a step backward or, you know, where it's more ambitious storytelling. They just thought it lacked more. Um, I thought that mm-hmm. was interesting. Uh, they made a really great small documentary. Remember American pimp? That's, uh, 
I think, yeah. yeah, that that's a great documentary. But after that, it's really scattered. Like they did uh, an Alan Moore adaptation from Hell, which I've never seen, and then The Book of Eli. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Never yeah. saw it, but it's okay. I remember it. it had some really cool, uh, again, some really cool style to it, and you know, just some of the visuals and fight choreography was cool. But the movie had a really obvious reveal where I was like, this is supposed to be a twist. Um, at least for me, that was confusing because it seemed obvious the whole time. But uh, yeah, and then I think one of them, Alan, I think made another movie uh, a few years later, and it, it escapes me what it is, but it might be like a Ryan Reynolds movie, an action movie, or a, a Mark Wahlberg movie. But that, that, I mean, a career that essentially with its first feature starts in 93, and they haven't made much else. They've made about four or five movies total. Like, um, I wonder if that's by I don't want to assume it's by choice. Uh, I kind of wonder why these filmmakers haven't been allowed to do more because they're, if nothing else, these guys are gifted and it's obvious even watching what I found to be like stuff that didn't work for me as well in menace. Like it's still obvious to me that like that's part of, maybe that's the theme of these recent episodes is like the messiness of these early directorial debuts is again, what with menace as well is what gives it its, uh, what makes it still worth revisiting this many years old? Cause you know, this is an old movie, Joe, you know, to everybody it's else. <laughs> 25. Yeah. Um, it's an old movie. Well, I guess. The uh, Alan Hughes directed the defiant ones, which was the HBO documentary series oh, about yes. kind of interscope records about which I Jimmy Iveen and doctors, right? It's great. Yeah. It's, it's really well put together. So I think that, you know, he's, he's active and kind of, you know, if like if this is what he's segueing into, like I think that there's like you know he he definitely still has a knack of like putting things together, putting stories together. I think that like you know like with American Pimp and then with the Defiant ones, like they're they're good at documentary work, but it's just like their flair for fictional storytelling. You know, just in terms of like their ability to to cast who they cast. Cause I think that that's a takeaway from this is just like the ensemble and menace is so strong, you know? And, uh, like you mentioned Lorenz Tate and how like the, the smart casting of who they chose, like he was, you know, like as much as you could point to Joe Pesci as like, he's a scrappy, like little shit starty guy, like they were looking at big dudes to play O Dog, apparently, like for like, you know, in the initial stages of casting, and they're like, Oh, this isn't working. Like, why is it not like landing? Like nobody like seems to get it. And then he came in totally against type, it was just like the scrawny little guy. And uh and just like they're like, him, it's him. Like he's the <laughs> one. And like and he's perfect. Like he's perfect in the role. The way uh, Raphael kind of chews it up with how impulsive his character is in blind spotting. Like O Dog is perfectly at home in like, you know, Lawrence Tate as O Dog is perfectly like at home in the narrative. And like, you know, as much as it's Kane's story, seeing the hurt reflected in his eyes in the last couple moments of the movie is really what sort of like lands it dramatically as the tragedy it is, you know? Most definitely. And his friend holding him saying fight like that, the, that yeah. big guy, that guy who's the football player friend or whatever. Uh, yeah. It, it does, yeah, man, it, it gets me too. And I forgot that Sharif got, t- got hit in that, in the, the drive by at the end. I had forgotten that. And it's like, of course, you know, O dog is 
doesn't have a scratch on him you know the mm-hmm. the most volatile guy that's responsible for so much of the awful stuff like he he'll he'll potentially he'll probably die soon after too but like it's just it's uh, that tragedy is effective even though um yeah, it, it was, uh, uh, again, I, I, I'm not going to dwell that it was a mixed bag for me this time, but there was still a lot about this movie that, it, like, surprised me again or I had forgotten that, like, still really worked. Um, yeah. I wanted to point something out before we go, Joe, that, uh, uh, man, remember the Dissolve, the the website that uh, former AV Club people had started, a lot of favorite critics of ours? Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's, uh, yeah, it's, what'd you say? <laughs> It's coming back. <laughs> no, that was a bad setup on my part. If that's what I thought, uh, oh, they, they, they covered menace, right? They did. Yeah. And they have a, they've kept that website, whoever owns it, pitchfork or whatever. I, I and I'm glad to see, uh, only a few years later, it's still there, the dissolve. And you can find, they did, uh, menace to society as one of their movie of the week selections. So there's like three long features, specifically on it from around 2015, I think is when it was released, but you can just look up menace to society, the dissolve, um, and all three articles should come up and they're really great. And it's a reminder of why that website was awesome. And the intelligence looking back and giving context to older films and why that's cool. You know, a lot of what we are doing, I feel like in our podcast, Joe is sort of in that same realm. So that's why I shot it out. And that even, you know, now it's there, I enjoyed the hell out of reading those articles and I'm so glad hopefully they stay online for posterity because unlike most other shit written on film online, like it actually has value uh, 25 years on since that movie came out. Like, um, you can read these, these essays and they still will be like timely because, uh, the writing's so good. So, um, if you enjoy reading that kind of stuff, I recommend you go that way. I, I certainly enjoyed diving into that, um, for, for this. So, uh, that's my shout out. Do you got anything like that you want to point people towards or should we just uh, wrap it up proper? Um, yeah, just, Go uh, buy the Menace to Society soundtrack on cassette and just yes. play that shit. It's great. It's not on the soundtrack, but they use my favorite Al Green song in a scene. That's one of my favorite scenes where they're driving to. It's actually when they're going to go murder the guy that mm-hmm. uh, came. And, but they're playing Al Green's "Love and Happiness," and the they Wait, use that. Yeah. What? Go go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's a that the build is there because that song has like a thirty second sort of like easy strumming, and then Al Green like comes in and they play it all perfectly, and then that that guitar riff is like it's one of my favorite songs. So, um, but it's not on the soundtrack though. I looked at least the one that I looked up. So that's too bad. But that soundtrack is damn good, nonetheless. While while we were discussing Menace moment just mere moments ago, um, I thought like I thought of that scene because that's like that's a pretty classic scene where they're like, they're going to possibly retaliate um, Harold's death. And like, it's the first time Kane is potentially ever going to be responsible for hurting or killing somebody. And so like they're, they're talking through it. And like, that's one of those scenes as you're like inching towards something horrific, it's still a, it's a hilarious scene somehow. (laughs) And like the three like characters, uh, MC eight is the driver of the car uh, who plays a wax who we, we didn't mention, but like he's their great. Inter- huh? He's great. I'm sorry. Keep going. He's, great. he's responsible also for the closing song straight up menace. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But their, uh, their interplay with each other is so just like perfectly timed and hilarious and reminded me of the opening, the like second scene in blind spotting where they're all three in the sort of plush interior of a classic car. Yes, absolutely. So, they're it all bouncing off each other for sure. Um, I do think these two movies speak together, which which really was a nice pairing. So um, 
yeah, man, that's a it's a great uh, it was a great hold up choice. Thanks. So just chill to the next episode. All right, enough pleasantries. Let's wrap this thing up uh, properly. Episode 179 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find us and our other shows at theplaylist.net. And if you look up the Playlist Podcast Network on your uh, podcatcher of choice, you'll find us there. Um, we've got other podcasts like the Playlist Podcast and Indie Beat. Uh, and us and over under movies, uh, which should be coming back sometime or some episodes should be peppered in. So look forward to that. Um, you can email us at adjust your tracking at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. If you want, I'm just going right over your parts here, Joe, just to get right to that, that thank you. So thank you for talking with me today, Joe. Hey, thanks, Eric. <laughs>